Hello and welcome to Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Gavin Telemetti and I'm your host tonight and I am joined with... Joyla Ferlano and I am co-hosting along with Gavin and I am pleased to welcome Dr. Roman Krawitz here. He is visiting from the University of Calgary um, giving a keynote talk at the Biology Graduate Research Forum. So welcome. Thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And so how is the how are you enjoying the conference and being here at Western so far? Yeah, no, it's actually so I did my uh, both my uh, bachelor's and my, my PhD degrees here at, at Western. And it's been a long time since I've been back here. So it was great to, to come back, see the see the biology department, see some familiar faces, see some new faces and the and actually see the kind of the breadth and scope of research being done by the graduate students in the, in the department. So it was great. That's awesome. And is this your first time back since doing grad school? I've here? actually, so I left in September or August 2006, and then I came back uh, for one meeting, but uh, I think it was probably about six, seven years ago, but the meeting was held off campus at the uh, South Health Hospital, and okay. so I didn't get to come back. It was the first time I've seen that, and that was interesting, but it was the like the children's research program or, or something like that in the in the South. And then this is actually the first time I've had to come back and spent any time on like the main campus. So it's, yeah, it's great. See, and so see after, the old after Western, you went right to University of Calgary? Yeah, so I, I went to, uh, so that like a couple days after I defended, or like I think the two days after I defended my PhD, we were on a, on a plane and uh, landed in Calgary, started my postdoc. I uh, did two postdocs in Calgary and then started my own lab in Calgary in uh, in January 2013 and been in Calgary like basically this whole time. Oh, wow. Yep. So I just don't like moving. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Have you found the transition from London to Calgary? It's actually, it took a while for, so I was born in Ontario and then just outside of Toronto and then did my, spent like almost like almost a decade in in London and so London really became came home and it's a it's a great it's a great city it's just a it's kind of like to be to be honest it's kind of like a good mix of uh, of everything I think it has something for almost everybody and then uh, it, it did take I'd say about a year and a half to two years to really kind of settle into to Calgary at the beginning it was just so so different that um, like it just didn't you know you get like really homesick for for London but then after after a while, it's you see start to see the benefits of like you know the differences and benefits of a, a new place and you know the yes the mountains are gorgeous but the one thing that I still desperately miss that we don't have in Calgary is trees and so that <laughs> or not nothing close to the trees that you get in uh, in Ontario especially southwestern Ontario and just yeah the you don't see all the beautiful colors during fall and stuff so it's it's wonderful to be back during this time and and actually see all the million squirrels running around is actually it's good fun as well <laughs> that's a perfect time then to have a conference yeah the trees are beautiful um and how long have you had your own lab at um yeah. u of calgary so i started my own lab in uh, january 2013 and okay. actually i've had a really good uh it's been a great experience a lot of good uh been really lucky with uh, grad students and staff and it yeah it makes uh, it makes for a really in- enjoyable job that's for sure and how large of a lab do you have? How many grad it, students? It kind of it like ranges from like historically, I think the most is not including summer students because then like the numbers can swell during the summers. But I'd say like the most has been around ten, and right now we're about six. So kind of that uh, it's readily manageable by one person. <laughs> when you start getting too high above that, it, it you definitely run into manager. I think my opinion, you run into managerial things that there's only so many people one person can effectively manage, and for me that's about. At a max about 10 to 12. <laughs> That's a lot, so <laughs> good job. And in your lab and with your team of staff and grad students, so uh, what research do you guys uh, particularly focus on? Yeah, so at the University of Calgary, in the, so I'm in the faculty of medicine called the Cummings School of Medicine, and that we're divided into uh, institutes. 
so like it's uh, they're kind of like sometimes virtual institutes sometimes con like bricks and mortar institutes and so the institute that I'm in is called the McKaig Institute for Bone and Joint Health and as the name kind of infers that it's focused on bone and joint health the uh, so the three main priorities of the institute is um, osteoarthritis uh, inflammatory arthritis so like including rheumatoid arthritis and uh, osteoporosis and then my lab is specifically fo focused on uh, osteoarthritis and then then leveraging off that would be uh, cart injuries to the cartilage that could result eventually in osteoarthritis, and then where our where we where, where I'm a cell and uh, trained cell and developmental biologist and stem stem cell biologist, and where we come into that picture is looking at two things: uh, understanding the role of stem cells within the joint. So we all have stem cells in our bodies, adult stem cells, and where my lab is interested in what those stem cells are doing in a normal joint and an injured joint, and then also I'm sure it's like everybody's probably seen in the news multiple times this idea of like stem cell, you know, concept of stem cell therapy. And it's especially pre prevalent for diseases such as osteoarthritis. But I just like to say that none of those are Health Canada or FDA approved and still experimental. So always just take that with a, a grain of salt with, with what you see in the newspaper or on the, the Internet. But uh, uh, so we look at um, like if, if it is. Uh, possible, and if there's if we can generate evidence to show that stem cells could be used to treat diseases like osteoarthritis, and because uh, you said like osteoarthritis, and then you also mentioned uh, inf inflammatory yep. arthritis. Uh, what's the main difference between those two? Yeah, so historically, and so what I'm about to say is not accurate, but it's what <laughs> it was considered historically accurate, is that osteoarthritis would be uh, so about. Somewhere between one in four and one in eight Canadians will, through their life will, will suffer from osteoarthritis. And it was historically considered as degenerative arthritis. So it's kind of like a wear and tear disease. So the more you use your joint, the more load you put on the joint, the kind of the more damage you do to your joint, eventually that'll lead up to osteoarthritis. And it was considered not a less of a biological kind of process, but more of just like you've you physically damaged yourself and now you've got a disease. Um, inflammatory arthritis, and that includes diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, it's actually, it's, all, it's always been considered a kind of an autoimmune disorder. Uh, it, the disease is driven by inflammation, out of control inflammation. And now we actually have a lot of effective drugs against uh, rheumatoid arthritis that basically uh, drop down that, like control that inflammation. And if, if treated soon enough, most patients actually will go into remission. Uh, with osteoarthritis, it's only in the last probably decade or so that it's it started to move away from this kind of wear and tear disease that you've just, you've, you haven't treated your joints right, and then you're going to get osteoarthritis. So now it's more, it's understood that even kind of small injuries to the joint can result in inflammatory processes and degenerative processes driven by inflammation in the joint, um, the, which, which will eventually over time, sometimes five years, sometimes 25 years, lead to this, this degenerative phenotype of the whole joint. Um, so it's not the same type of inflammation that you see in a disease like you know, rheumatoid arthritis, but it still is driven by inflammation. And unfortunately, it's just the there's a lot of different risk factors that will increase the chance of somebody getting like osteoarthritis. So like a joint injury, uh, a lot of people, you know, like the, the more people are active, the more play like a kind of I don't want to say, like more kind of competitive, high impact sports. So tearing your ACL, damaging your meniscus all is a is a Big, big risk factor for developing osteoarthritis later in life. Uh, obesity, like you know, that's a 
it's a growing, growing problem in North America, worldwide even. So obesity and potentially metabolic disorders, so people that aren't necessarily aren't obese but still have a metabolic issue can be a risk factor. There are genetic issues. And then there's like interplay between all of these types of things. So somebody might have a bit of metabolic disorder, a bit of a joint injury, and that like X, X times Y equals increased risk. We're, we're still trying to figure out how to kind of accurately um, identify those types of risk. But the problem is, is because the disease can start from kind of so many different ways. It's hard to diagnose patients early in the disease trajectory, and therefore it's hard to uh, provide like the right treatment for the right patient. So somebody with metabolic disorder, if you treat them with physiotherapy, it's probably not going to be as effective because they don't really have, it's not so much of a in their disease, it's not the in, it's not a joint injury or something driving the progression of the disease. It's because they've got like a, a, some sort of systemic problem. It is a big issue, and and um, what that resulted in is that clinicians have very limited approved therapies to actually treat patients with osteoarthritis. And one of the one of the the main the main problems coming from that is that so when a patient actually finally gets diagnosed with osteoarthritis, there's really not much a clinician can do or if your your physician can do, and that patient will then have to usually manage symptoms by themselves or with their physician for you know five, ten, fifteen years until they become a candidate for a total joint replacement, and then once they're a candidate for total joint replacement, uh, they get their joint replaced. But again, that's a it's fairly invasive surgery. It's it's kind of ex- it's expensive to the the healthcare system, but on the flip side, it's that they're they are very effective. And over eight, I think it's over eighty five percent of Canadians that have had a joint replacement are satisfied with their joint replacement. They can go back to their you know playing golf or getting mobility back. But it's just that there are there's a big gap between when a patient is first diagnosed and when they actually become a candidate for for a joint replacement. And so um, in your lab, do you mainly focus on a certain type of injury or is it, are you looking at just wear and tear with age or a certain population or all of the above? Yeah. So when we, um, so we do some work on some, some patient work. So I'm not, I'm a PhD and, and so not an MD or a clinician, but we collaborate with orthopedic, uh, orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic sports uh, medicine practitioners. And so what we, what we do is we typically get samples from patients, uh, tissue samples from patients that are going in for, for one type of surgery or, or, or another um, and that so what we we get from the from our partners who are uh, sports medicine physicians they typically will see patients that have um, uh, injury during sport right so it'll be like mm-hmm. an ACL rupture a meniscal tear or like a combination of those so those people are they are they don't have osteoarthritis there they might have some cartilage damage from the injury but we know that if you have an ACL tear and especially with any type of meniscal damage, you are, uh, your lifetime risk of getting osteoarthritis is about 50-50. Wow. And, that, uh, and then we also get samples from patients that are like end-stage osteoarthritis, so the patients that are going in to get a, a joint replacement, and we get the samples from, from their joint tissues as well. And then we isolate uh, stem cells, and we also isolate stem cells from the, the joints of normal uh, tissue donors, so tissue donors without any type of arthritis or injury. And we try to see what is the difference between the stem cells and like a normal joint or a stem cell from a joint that has been injured and most likely to go on to become osteoarthritic or the stem cell from a joint that is cl- like clearly osteoarthritic and at the basically the end of its that the end of that joint's life yeah right um and do you also do like animal research as well or is it mainly patient yep so we do in my lab that we uh well 
if you're going to do um, like a human like clinical study or human clinical trial, like yes, it's it's very expensive and you have to actually generate a lot of data to show that you're uh, that it's safe to proceed to 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 basically performing an experimental therapy on on a patient. Right. And so just like we're in, my lab isn't um, isn't there yet. And so we do we do preclinical uh, clinical work or. Uh, models we typically use would be um, like a rodent, so mouse, mouse and rat, and that uh, the mouse is a uh, is an excellent model just because of you can the the genetic approaches that you can apply in that that system, and the when we the draw some of the drawbacks about using the mouse the mouse model is just that um, if you're studying uh, musculoskeletal research that like the mouse skeleton is it's very different from a human skeleton mm -hmm. they're very flexible bones they're they're just there's a lot of differences in their their skeletal structure and we can actually if you look at rats their their bones are more similar to to kind of human but still still different but it's yeah so we we typically will stay with either looking at rodent models or or patient tissues and can you tell us a little bit more about what you use the mice for are you inducing injury and then yep. looking at the healing process yeah so the so we in my lab we actually do a fair amount of uh, transgenic mouse work so genetically modified mouse work um, that we can do, we are focused on the the joint. So um, we do two uh, two kind of specific uh, two specific things that we look at. We have two models in mouse. One that looks at the ability of that animal to regenerate its cartilage. So we can change the expression of genes, or we can add in uh, stem cells. We can add in either mouse stem cells or any, like if we use the right type of mouse, you can actually put human stem cells into a mouse joint as well and they won't be rejected. Oh. And so we can look at the ability of human stem cells to regenerate mouse cartilage, which, starts, cool. <laughs> which starts to give you uh, information if it can regenerate if a human stem cell can regenerate a mouse's cartilage, maybe there's a chance that it could re potentially also regenerate a human's cartilage. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we also, but the one of the main benefits of the mouse is that you, because of our just, we have so much understanding of the the mouse's genome that we can actually, uh, we can label the mouse's own stem cells with uh, fluorescent uh, protein, so we can actually track the mouse's stem cells over time in the in the living mouse. Mm -hmm. And so we can induce we can induce the the mouse's stem cells, adult stem cells, to become like red or green, and then you can make a you make a cartilage injury and see well under this condition do the stem cells grow new cartilage or how about under this condition do they grow grow new cartilage? Nine times out of ten that the stem cells do not form new cartilage, but very rare that you ever see stem cells making new cartilage. But if you make if you make certain changes to the the behavior of the stem cells, it looks like the stem cells will induce other cells to make new cartilage. So you will get cartilage repair, you will get cartilage regeneration. It just doesn't really appear that the stem cells are the ones that are making new cartilage, but they, they appear to be more of kind of the uh, the traffic cop that is like directing other cells to, to go where they need to go to build what they need to build. So what would cause that like one out of 10 chance that a stem cell would produce new cartilage? Yeah, so that's what we're, so we got active projects in the in the lab right now looking and looking at that and particularly those projects are around the, the human side. So when we're injecting the human stem cells into the, the, mouse, the mouse joints, and it's very it's very rare, but it does it does happen. So yeah, like this kind of one out of ten time that you will inject a hum a specific human stem cell population in an injured mouse uh, joint, and you'll see new cartilage. And then you'll also see that that new cartilage is made from the human stem cell that you 
that you injected. A lot of other times, like I said, we'll inject a human stem cell and you might get a benefit, you might get new cartilage being formed, but it's not derived from the stem cells. But very rarely we actually see new cartilage that's basically human cartilage in, in a mouse. And we're trying to figure out um, what is so special about those specific stem cells. And therefore, if, if you might be able to identify, if we can identify them in you know, in different patients and different populations, then maybe there's a way that you could purify them and uh, see if that would potentially be a, a novel therapy for, for patients suffering from cartilage injury or osteoarthritis. And you mentioned that for majority of the time that the stem cells wouldn't produce new cartilage, but they allow other cells or generate new cells to produce this cartilage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that depending on certain changes that they experience, uh, is it more like changes to the environment or changes to the procedure of how they get into the joint? So that's the one nice thing, like I was mentioning with mice, is that you can that that we have such a, a deep understanding of how their their we don't have a complete understanding of how their genome works. We just have a much more intricate understanding of how their genome works versus our own. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can actually induce changes only within the stem cell population. So in a mouse, you can activate a gene, repress a gene, and any combination between those two, like in a specific cell population you're interested in. So if we have, and you can do that all non-invasively. So you oh. can, the mouse is, you, you, you know, that you'll have a walking, you know, breathing mouse and that you can, in, you can in that uh, living mouse, you can actually make a, a genetic change only within the stem cell. And so then if we, we make some, some of those changes you, you make and you see no effect, other ones you, you make and you see like, a, you, you know, you don't get the desi- desired effect. Maybe the stem cells don't work as well. But we have a, we have a, couple, um, couple, a couple projects right now, especially one where we've made uh, just a change to the, the ability of the stem cell, just to how it proliferates, how it divides. And we see in that change that you can get uh, near perfect cartilage regeneration in those animals. And so there's a multiple types of uh, cartilage within your body. The two main types of cartilage you find within your, your joint would be uh, hyaline or articular cartilage. And that's the cartilage that's like, that everybody thinks about. That's the cartilage that's on top of your bones. And so that cartilage, anywhere you have kind of two bones coming into contact in your joint, so hip, knee, ankle, shoulder, elbow, uh, spine, it's called like this hyaline articular cartilage. And what that does is it allows for kind of low friction movement in the joint, pain, pain-free kind of motion. Like every time you take a step, you're, you're not feeling pain. And unfortunately, if you are feeling pain, it's probably because you've got osteoarthritis. Um, and then there's fiber cartilage. So fiber cartilage is more of like a, fi- like by the name, it's a fibrous type of cartilage. And that, that you find in certain, parts, in certain parts in your spine as well, and also the meniscus within your, your knee joints, between, it's also between the two bones, uh, you, you find that fiber cartilage as well. The interesting thing, though, is when um, humans damage, and certain types of mice, when humans damage their articular cartilage, so that's the hyaline cartilage, when it, there is a repair response, but it's an ineffective repair response, and that hyaline cartilage is repa- replaced by fiber cartilage. And fiber cartilage can't withstand the, the, like we take, you know, everybody's with their Garmin or their, their Fitbits or their Apple Watches. Everybody's trying to get your 10,000 steps a day. Uh, fiber cartilage cannot withstand that, that type of mechanical insult. And it just wears it. So it tries, your joint tries to repair with that. And it just wears down over a couple of years at, at the best. Um, and then the bone underneath is exposed. And that's very painful when you're, when you're um, walking on bone. Uh, and then the the third type of cartilage is actually called elastin cartilage or elastic cartilage, and that's uh, that's kind of like your your nose, your ears, like any type of the cartilage where it's kind of like malleable. 
it's very similar to the hyaline cartilage in your joint, but it just has this protein in it called elastin, which, you know, kind of elastic-y. And so that gives them mal- malleability. But the interest, the, one of the interesting things, though, is that uh, the articular cartilage in your joint, so when it's damaged, it doesn't repair correctly, the, it's called auricular, with a U, cartilage in your ear, that elastin cartilage. When it's damaged, it doesn't repair correctly. The, the cartilage in your nose is still elastin cartilage. It doesn't repair correctly when it's damaged. So the, um, the, there's, there's interesting things that you can, if you have a animal model or a model that actually, if you if the ear is damaged and the ear regenerates, it's a good indicator that the the actual um, the joint would actually regenerate as well. So sometimes you can do it non-invasively. You can see that okay, in this genetic animal or genetically modified mouse, the ear ear injury completely heals. It's a good idea. It's a yeah, about I think it's about ninety percent correlation that the joint is actually going to heal as well. So is that third type of cartilage then the most difficult one? to regenerate? Uh, I think it's the um, elastin cartilage you don't really find. It's it's more, elast- elastin cartilage is more, co- like the issues around elastin cartilage are going to be more cosmetic, right? So it's people that you have like typically disfigurement. It's not like a disability per se, that it's like a rate loss of range of motion or you can't walk or something like that, but they're more, it's more cosmetic issues. And there's there's labs, there are groups worldwide that are trying to figure out ways to, to effectively regenerate those, like kind of nose and ear cartilage so that to, to help with that disfigurement because uh, of all the societal and, and stuff that the well like mental well-being that goes along with with that mm-hmm. um, with uh, with osteoarthritis it's the the main it's going to be mainly that kind of uh, there's this thing where you, you, osteoarthritis is not going to kill you directly right so you you when you have pain when you're trying to walk or it's like the disability it's not it's not a fatal disease. But it's going. What what we understand more now is that so if you if you can't walk, that affects your well-being. Like those patients typically will get kind of increased depression. But if you're more stationary, then you, you're at a higher risk of like metabolic or obesity. You're also at a, an increased risk of like um, uh, cardiac issues as well. So then there then you get into things that can potentially be. Uh, you know, fatal if left left unchecked or untaken care of. But it's mm-hmm. just it's a disease that leads to it can lead to like other diseases. So. Have you noticed uh, during some of your studies a particular I don't know if like age group or profession where you've noticed one particular type of arthritis that seems to be quite common, or is it, it or is it or there's so many variables that it's very difficult it, to, uh, to, depend, I, to I, see. Your question there is actually kind of perfect for illustrating the point that it's like why it's so actually one of the biggest problems in the in the in the field of osteoarthritis on the clinical side is when you're when somebody develops a new therapy you have to do a clinical trial obviously before you can get it into like you know as a as a you know a legitimate treatment um, so when you're developing these clinical trials typically you need like you know hundreds if not thousands of patients enrolled in these trials and because it's a disease of such incredible heterogeneity um, you you don't really know who's who it's hard to tell like patients with joint injury it's usually it's a bit easy it's a bit easier to tell but then if you just have a clinical trial with everybody with joint injury then the therapy you're working on is not going to work well historically hasn't worked for everybody else that has like osteoarthritis for a different reason mm-hmm. and so uh, a big a big movement in the field is actually trying to subtype patients with osteoarthritis so effectively and reliably subtype them so we can say like yeah these 25% of have osteoarthritis because joint injury these like 25% are because of like a metabolic disorder these 25% are because you know x and then these 25 are y so when you're in a clinical trial you can you know if you see that it only your treatment only 
um, is beneficial for a certain population, then you can target that that uh, that treatment to uh, to that population instead of right now. What we see is that when you go over the 100% and it only works for 25, like 75% of your population fails on the treatment, you're not getting a, you're not going to get approved therapy, right? That only works for one out of four people. And even with sort of dividing into subgroups with injury and whatnot, um, do you find that every injury, for example, is very different from one another? Yeah, so that I can kind of more just speak anecdotally on because we're you know so I'm not a I'm not a clinician, but we we do work like with the, like I was saying with orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic sports medicine, and that like what you hear from the the, the our like our clinical collaborators is yes that that um, there is there is just so much heterogeneity. There's so many differences. Mm-hmm. One of the things that especially with pain tolerance, you'd see that somebody that uh, that has an x-ray and their joint looks like swiss cheese and the first time they've shown up in the the doctor's office and that person like that day is a candidate for joint replacement but they didn't be they didn't come in because of pain they came in because of like their joint was clicking or they've lost some range of motion but like that person should be screaming in agony every time they take a step but they're not and then the office like the, they see the opposite too or that the patient on like x-ray on mri the joint looks completely normal and that patient will like they like they cannot function because there's just so much pain in in that joint and just trying to understand that uh, some like our group isn't focused on pain but there's a, a big a big part of the osteoarthritic osteoarthritis research field looks at looks at pain because it's uh, I'm not trying to shoot my own research program in the in the field in the foot here but uh, if you line up a hundred patients with osteoarthritis and you ask them like what what's the problem. It's like 100 patients are going to tell you it's pain. And then the first thing is going to be cure my pain. Mm-hmm. And the second thing will be like, I want to get back to like a certain level of activity or be able to play golf or, or that kind of thing. No, not even in the top 10 is like, I want you to like regenerate my cartilage. It's, it's <laughs> not something that comes up. It's like, yeah. fix, like, please do something about my pain. And then I would like to get like function that I had back. And For like day to day activities. Exactly. Yeah. So that even so when we're looking at kind of cartilage, you know, labs focusing on cartilage regeneration, cartilage repair, it's that's not a direct like of course like you might be if you fix the damage they have in the cartilage, maybe they're gonna lose some pain and get back back some function, but it's not the primary uh, the primary thing the patient wants treated and it's and unfortunately, like unfortunately, sometimes what's been seen in past like failed clinical trials is where you provide a patient with a really good uh, pain medication, uh, their joint actually even it it destroys itself faster. So if they're if somebody's on like a, a joint that's compromised and you get, take away all the pain within that joint and they use that joint as they would before, the joint is still like mechanically compromised, structurally compromised, and it just goes downhill really really fast in, mm-hmm. in a small percentage of patients. Yeah. Okay. Mm. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Uh, so that was a. So I think there's a lot of information we learned about arthritis today. I don't know about you, Joyla. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know much about it. So that was great. Thank you so much. Well, unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our show. But if anyone wanted to contact you to learn more about you and your lab, uh, where could they find you? Yep. So I've developed a website in the last couple of years. So it's actually it's quite easy. It's uh, romankrowitzlab.com. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice and easy. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> I have been your host tonight, uh, Gavin Tolomedi, joined with Joyla Ferlano with uh, Roman Krowitz from University of Calgary. Uh, This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you would like to come on the show as a host or get involved with the committee, you can contact us at at gradcastradio at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at at Gradcast Radio. And you can now listen to our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube at at Gradcast Radio. And to listen to all our archived episodes, go to gradcast.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.